Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Robcast. You know, every once in a while, I interview someone. Um, it's someone that I would want to meet anyway, and the questions that I ask in these interviews are the questions that I would ask them whether or not we were recording it. That's actually way back when, when the Robcast first started. Uh, I would do like my, I don't know, talks, teachings, messages, um, sermons, whatever you call them. Um, but I noticed there were people that I would interact with and I would be talking to them thinking, man, everybody should meet this person. That's how this started. So every once in a while I interview somebody or I should probably be more accurate. I record a conversation that what I wanted, that I would have wanted to have with that person anyway. And this episode is a prime example of that. I've known Dean Nelson for at least a decade and what I find so utterly compelling about him is there is this there is this way that some people grow younger as they grow older. They're, they're more and more and more curious and compelling and interesting. And how do you do that? How do you become more alive the older you get? And so uh, having him here, and you'll see that right away. You'll see that this, uh, this man has so much wisdom for us. You know, like in the in, in lots of tribes and lots of cultures over the years, there were the village elders. There were these women and these men who were farther down the path, and they could help you sift and sort. They could help you discern. They could say to you, hey, this thing right here, it matters. Pay attention to it. And this thing over here that you're all caught up in, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Forget about it. We need these voices. So if in some small way I could introduce you to my friend Dean and you could pick some of this up from him, wouldn't that be amazing? Now, this week I will be in San Diego for the Introduction to Joy Tour. I'll be at the Spreckles Theater in lovely downtown San Diego. San Diego friends, I am coming your way. would love to see you. And then um, following week, Tucson, Arizona. I'll be at the Rialto and Mesa, Arizona. I've never done a show in Mesa. And then following that, a couple weeks, a week or two later, I'll be in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, Oklahoma. So uh, this tour rolls on and it's it's just a full-scale assault on cynicism. <laughs> Oh, my word. So, looking forward to seeing a number of you. But right now, my Robcast friends, allow me to introduce Dean Nelson. All right, my friends. We are here in the back house with Dean Nelson. This is your first time here in the back house. I'm, yes, I, I feel so honored that I'm in the inner sanctum where the Tigris <laughs> and the Euphrates meet. <laughs> This is this is impressive. This is the nerve center. <laughs> this is global headquarters. Okay, my friends, I met Dean Nelson well over 10 years ago. Oh yeah. And instantly was like this guy is amazing. Dean has been a journalist for the past 40 years. That's correct. You were born in 57, is that correct? 54. 54. Born in 1954. I'll let you do the math. What, what, this, why is this relevant? Why is my age relevant here, Rob? Because when I first met you I was like, this man is curious. Well, that's true. And over the years, being your friend, your curiosity 
is grow appears to be growing. You are correct. And that's why when we first talked about doing a Robcast episode, it was like that alone. And 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 Dean has a new book which we're going to get to, but that alone to me is really interesting. Um, so that's why I bring that up. That is, I'm an older guy who's still curious? Um, and you, over the past, what, 10, 15 years, you appear to me more engaged than ever. That's absolutely true. And is yes. that temperament, life situation, experiences you've had? Have you always been growing younger as you grow older? <laughs> like, what is... Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so, have, have we begun? I mean, am I supposed to answer this question, or are we just in the <laughs> in the rapport building section of the by interview? The way, by the way, my friends, <laughs> Dean has written a book called Talk to Me. He's been a journalist for 40 years. New York Times, Boston Globe, and USA Today um, has won all sorts of awards for his reporting. So, he... Re- has just re- written this, uh, it's 300 and 412, 414 page book on the art of asking questions. But just now you are asking me what's happening in this interview. Yeah, I just want to know where this, where we are in the interview. <laughs> Have we begun? <laughs> My friends, I'm interviewing a master, but he has been thrown off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need, I need to get reoriented here. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Yeah, so because, uh, actually, you. because I wanted to start there with what I've observed about you as a person before we get into your work, because I feel like this book um, has it's in some ways it's a manual on how to interview, how to be a journalist, how to. But at another level, the the book feels has elements of memoir. It's like helping me understand you. Sure. I, I think both of those are true, but I also think it's about how do we talk to each other in a, in a deeper, more civil, even transcendent kind of way that goes beyond just the, hey, what are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing this. What are you doing? I'm doing that. And then, then we say, well, where, do we, where does this conversation go from there? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think it's it's really for anybody who talks to other people on a regular basis. Uh, so yeah, on on the one hand, it's for journalists, but it's really anybody who's interested in a deeper way to engage with one another. But if you want to go back to your original question, which was <laughs> my engagement in the world, I just think if you're curious and if you wonder how does the world work, and is it improving? And if not, why not? Can I be a participant in making it better? You, by definition, have to be engaged in what's going on around you. You can't, you can't withdraw. You have to go in. And so, yeah, I, I think I've spent my entire adult life just going further and further into the, uh, to the engagement of how the world works. And boy, if you're not curious or fascinated or anything by by that then yeah um you're probably not very interesting <laughs> <laughs> i love this page nine uh and you you there's this interesting um almost like callback that keeps happening in the early part of the book where you say on um, page nine remember everyone is an interviewer i think that's absolutely true so if you if you take any profession, for instance, whether you're a financial advisor or a nurse or a social worker or a lawyer or a podcaster, 
or whatever, you're talking to people and trying to engage them at a level beyond just extracting information. But if you're a father or a boyfriend or anything like that, you're also engaging in some level of interaction and discourse that also is going to be beyond just the surface. I, yeah, I believe that. I, I think we're all interviewers because we all want to connect in some way. Yeah. So what's interesting about the book, as I feel like I'm in your one of your journalism classes. Cool. But you keep, we keep moving from, here's how to use a recording device. Mm-hmm. Here's how to open it to, how do you see the world? How yeah. do you see people? Mm-hmm. Um, almost like what kind of human being are you? And then back to the mechanics, and then back to these larger questions. No, that's. I think that's a really good observation. That um, it it on the one hand it is very practical because it talks about yeah where should you even conduct this interview? How should you order your questions? But it's also how do you honor another human being? Which is we're really talking about compassion. Certain degree we're talking about empathy. You know. Um, How do you uh, interact with just another human being so that we aren't just role players in this world? So yeah, it's it's deeper than just the mechanics. Yeah, a couple of you tell all sorts of stories here. Um, You tell about the number of times when you have been reporting on a school shooting. Yeah, and you tell about uh, this one line from the girl who says, "Today I grew up too fast." Mm A number of the stories as a reporter, because the New York Times calls you and said, X happened. Yeah. You're the closest writer we have. Get Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Now, the first, we have to go back, because the first time we met, you told me a story, and I was like, I wonder if it's going to be in the book, and it's the last story in the book. The first time we met, you told me about getting a call from the New York Times, that there had been a mass suicide. Oh, yeah. Rancho Santa Fe. Rancho Santa Fe. 39 people in the Heaven's Gate cult committed suicide believing they were joining and embarking on a journey in an invisible spaceship to ride along with Haley's Comet. Something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. And they call, the New York Times says, we need you to get out where it happened. Right. So you tell this story about following police helicopters. Yeah, I, I knew where Rancho Santa Fe was. But it's it's sort of the Beverly Hills of uh, of San Diego in mm-hmm. that only only bigger lot, you know, uh, where you have horses and, and you know, several acre lots, and nobody's got addresses, and none of the streets have names, you know. So you just kind of drive around. If if you know where you're going, then obviously you you belong. But if you don't, then you don't. <laughs> so I got up there. And I, I know where Rancho Santa Fe is, but I didn't know where this house was. And so I just kind of, uh, I, I looked around and finally I looked up and I saw a helicopter hovering a few miles away just in one spot in the sky. And I just thought, okay, that must be it. So I just followed these streets uh, until I got kind of under that helicopter and that's where I saw all the police cars and everything. I was one of the first reporters at that house. And, uh, yeah, that was that was one of the more unnerving stories I've ever worked on. Why is that? I wanted to start with that story because of... What is that like when you pull up to the house? 
Well, first of all, it's at, at first it's like any crime scene. So you have all sorts of police uh, there, and they're mostly just standing around talking uh, to each other. But you've got all this police tape and everything, um, so you know something big has happened. You've got people from the neighborhood who are just kind of looking around. Uh, I had a at the time I had a press pass with the New York Times, so I pulled that out and, and uh, clipped it to my uh, shirt and just walked under the police tape and just started following uh, up my way up to the house. So I walked right up to the house uh, where this had happened. At this point, we still didn't know what had happened. All the New York Times national desk knew was that a bunch of people died. They didn't know how many, they didn't know how they died. They had assumed it was a mass murder. And so they just asked me to get there and start finding out what happened. So I walked up to the house and, and you know, sheriff's deputy just stops me and uh, tells me I can't go in. So, yeah, I just, I asked him what went on there, and he said, I can't tell you. I said, well, did a bunch of people die in there? I can't tell you. I, I asked him about 80 questions. He became like one of those guards at uh, Buckingham, Buckingham Palace, Palace yeah. right? He didn't even look at me. He just, and I said, well... I think I'm just going to go on in there and take a look for myself. And he says, if you do that, I will arrest you. So, all right, all right. So I just kind of stood there for a little while, and then it dawned on me, wait a second, I know a sheriff's deputy who works up in this part of San Diego. His mom is my kid's babysitter. Uh-oh, <laughs> I may have just identified. Anyway, the, uh, um, so I just said that guy's name to this sheriff's deputy who's, who's standing there. I said, where would I find, and I named this guy. And the guy just kind of, I just saw a reaction in his face. And then he went back to Buckingham Palace. And he goes, you might want to try him at home. So I thought, okay, he knows something. So I call this guy at home. He answers the phone. I tell him what I'm doing. He said, um, yeah, I can't talk to you. I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, I, I can't talk to you. And I, I said, well, can I come over to your house and talk to you? He said, no, I'm just getting, I just got home from the hospital. Hospital? Why would you have been in the hospital? He said, I can't tell you. So I finally got him to tell me a little bit. They thought maybe something had gotten in the air vents mm -hmm. in the house where all these people died. And I said, well, were you in the house? Is that why you're in the hospital? And he said, I'm the one who discovered the bodies. So this, I had, this guy, just by chance, I knew who he was. And um, so he agreed to meet with me off the record the next morning. And then he became sort of my, my off-the-record guide for my reporting the rest of the week when I was working on this. Now, there is a, and this happens again and again in the stories you tell, there is a persistence yeah. To being a journalist, mm -hmm. that every, it's the opposite of improv, is yes and, it's no, and you just keep going. Well, it's, it, it actually is a little like improv in that you, you have to roll with, with what you can get and, and what is happening at the time. You can't, you can't make something happen, but you can, you can follow a, you know, a certain trail until you realize, okay, that's sort of pointless. But if, if you know there's something there and nobody is uh, helping you, you do have to just kind of stay at it until now, you get it. In that story you just told, 
the no, I can't tell you that. No, I can't tell you that. It feels like it's chum in the water for for you as a reporter. Yeah, it it is. I mean, it just raises your sense of there's a story here. Something's happening. Yeah, and and I'm the person who's gonna figure it out. Or or to be more altruistic about it, the public ought to know what's going on here. You got all this police activity here mass murder that person may still be on the loose um the public ought to know that and uh and i'm here so i might as well be the one who tells them when you um if i would have met you in your early 20s did you want to be a journalist then no early 20s i uh i i was pre-med in college so (laughs) yeah exactly that's laughable on its face but uh uh no i and then I, right at the end, you know, getting ready for the MCAT and stuff, I decided, you know, I, I just, I love the adrenaline of it, which is related to the journalism yes, exactly. part, right? So I love the adrenaline of being on an ambulance crew, which I had been. I love the adrenaline of working in the ER, which I had done since high school. And uh, I loved that. You but, worked in the ER room in high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gunshots, delivering babies, uh, uh, Pulling bodies out of cars, yeah, all of that, yeah. High school in was it where in the Minnesota mi- Minneapolis Hennepin County General Hospital, downtown Minneapolis. As a high school kid, yeah, I was part of a class. They called it medical biology, <laughs> and it was basically you're a volunteer orderly in the ER, but it's you know their general hospital basically. So and you that saw led to I should go to med school, but then that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I, what I decided was I didn't want to be in a lab all day. I wanted to be out, you know, and where the action was. But if you're going to be a doctor, and God bless them, they got to study. And I just wasn't, <laughs> I, I just didn't want to study that much and that hard. So I spent three years in my own sort of desert after I graduated from college, just wondering, what am I put on this earth to do? And I honestly did not know. So... I did what a lot of people do when they have no marketable skills uh, and no direction. <laughs> I worked for a church. And so... <laughs> I did not see that coming. Yeah. I was like, what yeah, that's, gonna, what's he going right. to say? That's right. I thought that could be borderline insulting to you. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, so I worked in a, an urban church in Detroit, Michigan, because this was during the 70s, during the whole Jesus movement thing, they had oh. a coffee house. And I got hired to run this coffee house for three years in urban Detroit. And we would bring in bands and, uh, you know, acting groups and all that sort of stuff on weekends. And people would just come off the street into this coffee house. And we tried to minister to them. And during this three years, are you thinking uh, there's some other thing for me to do? I just oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But here's what was interesting: the entire time I was in this church, these three years in Detroit, I was writing. I was writing humor. I was writing plays. I was writing screenplays. I was writing essays. You know, the world wasn't seeing any of this, uh, but I was. I was writing. And uh, I had a humor column in a religious magazine, you know, for years. And so I kept doing that. But at no point, Rob, did it ever dawn on me that writing was actually a thing you could do. 
and <laughs> and get you get you in any kind of a vocational. So there's this thing you love to do, and right. given a blank slate in your free time, you're doing it. That's all I did. You're, which, by the way, pause, Robcast friends. What is it that you do when you could be doing anything? Uh, where does your heart take you? Exactly. Given of a Friday night with nothing planned. Like, I mean, there's like a, there's a thing there happening mm-hmm. with you. How do you get, and, and it, it never occurs to you, hey, this could actually be more than something I just do in my spare time. Yeah. It never occurred to me that you, that this was a thing that I could do. That's so, fantastic. So I had, so it finally kind of came to this climactic moment where, you know, Detroit had been uh, declared the murder capital of the world. And uh, my, and I was newly married. And so um, my wife's uncle finally invited us to his little summer place in Indiana and he sends his wife and my wife off for the day, and it's just him and me. He's a an anthropologist. He wrote the uh, the Abingdon Study Bible. I mean, this this guy is a giant, you know, in the Methodist Church as a historian, as an archaeologist, as everything. His name is Ed Blair, and uh, he just sat me down and said, "How long are you going to do this Detroit thing?" I just said I don't I don't know, and he said, "Well, what's your plan?" And I I don't I don't have a plan. He he just you could tell this was really vexing him at some point, and so so finally he says, "Well, what are you good at?" And I said, "I'm a pretty good writer." And he goes, "Okay, all right, let's do something with this. How do you get developed as a writer?" So as the day went on, one of the things, he is the one who said, well, have you ever considered journalism? They, they write all the time, and they get paid for it. No, I'd never, ever. I figured I'd be, I wanted, I wanted to be the, a comedy writer. I wanted to write for Mad Magazine or, you know, something like that. And he says, no, what about journalism? So I looked into journalism, and I thought, this looks wonderful. And so I started applying to journalism schools, and with his help, he just said, go someplace that will develop you as a writer. So I went to journalism school. And I'm, kid- I'm not kidding you, this, this sounds so cliche-ish, but the first day of class in journalism school, I felt like I was in the middle of one of those Franco Zeffirelli films where the shaft of light kind of comes down from the ceiling onto my desk in the classroom. I just thought... This is what you're supposed to do. Wow. And and that's and it was absolutely the truth. And how do you get from that moment to writing for the New York Times? Well, that came from uh after doing journalism for uh several years, and then I got hired by a university in San Diego to start their journalism yeah. program. Uh, This is Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego. So they hire me to start the journalism program. And I'm just thinking, I like teaching, but I really like writing. So I got to keep writing. So I contacted first the Boston Globe and said, hey, you don't have anybody in Southern California. So why don't I cover stuff in Southern California for you? You've contacted the Boston Globe. I did. I love it. I did. And so they, they said, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the America's Cup yachting race or the night, uh, another serial killer, the Night Stalker serial killer. That was the next question I was going to ask you about. Yeah. So I, I was covering that. I covered a, a lot of stuff on the border, a lot of stuff between Tijuana, San Diego mm-hmm. for the Boston Globe. Then I realized, you know, I like this teaching and writing thing a lot. How do I stay at this? Well, if you're going to teach full-time at a university, you really have to have another degree. So my wife and I dropped out of life, took a leave of absence, and I went back and got a PhD. And it was while I was working on my PhD that I made enough contacts with the New York Times, because one whole chapter was about the New York Times. And when I was done with them in New York, I said, okay, I've been doing all this stuff for the Boston Globe. How do I do this for you? And they said, here's how you do it. So I've been writing for them ever since. I've been writing for the Boston, uh, for the New York Times for almost 30 years. That's a great, that's a, that's a great story. Okay, so let's go to Boston Globe. They, Boston Globe editor contacts you, says there's a serial killer on the loose in Mission Viejo. Correct. An hour north of where you're living. Right. We need you to go up there. Yeah. Go into the neighborhood where the latest... Find where the house was. Attack and assault yeah. happened. Yeah. The guy, was, the guy had been killed, the woman had been raped and mutilated. And, the, and your editor says, get up there and get us a story, tell us what isn't being reported. How does that yeah, work? Yeah, and, and actually, I, on the one hand, you just think, what does the Boston Globe care about something that's happening in Mission Viejo? But the way they framed it, I, I thought was brilliant, which was, we're not interested in as much about the facts of how many people have been hurt and, you know, um, all of the, the, the bloody details. We want a bigger think piece of what happens to a neighborhood yeah. after an attack like this occurs. So what happens, how does a, when this guy is still on the loose, how does a neighborhood still live with that fear? And, and with that trauma. So that's the story they asked me to go up there and do, which is the, a similar story they had me to do about wildfires, you know, in Northern California. Yeah. We're, we're not interested in how many acres were lost. We, wanna, we want you to follow around a firefighting crew for a while, which I did. And we want to know, know what that human cost is to the firefighting crew. So that's the kind of stuff I was doing for the Boston Globe. So here, and this, this, is, this Night Stalker thing comes up in the interview book because you have to cast this really wide net once you get up there of who do I want to talk to and why? What am I interested in finding out? And how do I get um, people who have just gone through this? This was just days ago. Um, how do I get them to open up to this total stranger when they know the bad guy's still out there? And that's... And are you, because you talk about parking in the neighborhood and you start knocking on doors. Yeah. Are you in those moments, are you nervous? Is your blood pumping? Is that how? No, that's a great question. Um, I, it's, on the one hand. There's I'm, a lot of these stories in this book. There the are a lot of those stories. There's a lot of dicey situations where someone like me is like, oh my dear God, get me out of this as fast as possible. And yet you just charge ahead. Charge ahead That's might not, the not right be word. accurate. Well, I've, uh, you don't get in your car and drive away, which is no. like everything within me. Um, right, right, right. The, pl- the situations you've been in, you just do the next thing. Yeah, so there are a couple of things going on. One is I really trusted my editor. 
I felt like he really knew what he was asking me to do, yes. which is to talk about this big universal thing that we can all tap into, which is fear. We can all tap into that. And so what does that feel like in a neighborhood? So I, I thought the wisdom of that story idea was, was valid. My experience as a journalist of despite the fact that you think everybody's just going to not either not come to the door or throw you off their, their front step, I also thought that isn't necessarily how it always goes. Well, my next question after this, I'll keep going. So, so there was a part, and just total self-doubt of, what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> and why would anybody talk to me? And I wouldn't talk, you know, to a guy coming up in the middle of the day. But some people didn't talk to me, but one neighbor did. And it was the neighbor whose house the woman who had been attacked ran to. And that woman talked to me because nobody, and this is, this is the counterintuitive part about journalism and about interviewing. Nobody had asked her about her, about this, this woman whose house, you know, the, the victim came to. Nobody had said, and how are you doing? What's, what's your version of what happened here? And this is what I think is so interesting about interviewing, is people so rarely are asked to tell their own story. I mean, the, the typical people, the celebrities, all that, everybody wants to know, the Kardashians, everybody wants to know, you know, what their, what their latest thing is. Um, but for the rest of us, to have someone show interest in you and say, tell me about you. Tell me what's going on. What happened? And how are you? That's all I did with this particular woman. She had told me that she couldn't talk to me because she was too busy. She was making dinner. Um, she ends up feeding you. She, had, she did. Uh, I had asked. I thought, j let's just be you know, normal here. I said, could you just talk to me either through your door or out in the steps here, your front steps? Because how does she know I'm not that guy? And she goes, no. I don't. And she had just gotten out of the shower. So she's in a robe and a towel in her hair. She says, I don't have time to talk to you out there. But I am making dinner. If you want to sit at my kitchen table, I'll talk to you. I figured I w I'd get 20 minutes. I was there for, I don't know, two or three hours. Yeah, she made me lunch. Uh, gave me a huge hug at the end and thanked me for asking about her. Okay, this comes up a, a number of times. And you do a really, really interesting thing about the power of witnessing. Yeah, yeah. Witnessing uh, to yes. the trauma, witnessing to the loss, witnessing to the disruption. That as a journalist... Often you're there to get a story, but you talk about how often you end up giving people this gift. Yes. One of the principles, if, if I could quote uh, the science fiction writer Ray Bradbury, he just says, here's what writers are obligated to do. You are obligated to bear witness to the universe. That's what writers do. We bear witness. So if you take that to a journalism perspective... We say, yeah, that's what we're doing too. We're bearing witness. But then if you take that to more of a human interaction position, we're here to bear witness to what was your experience? What, wh wh how, how was this for you? And how are you? There's something beautiful that happens when you go there with another human being. 
You've mentioned that um, school shootings, a plane crash. There's a number of stories you tell about talking to people in the most tragic, terrifying, sort of electrified with violent situations. And vulnerable. And yet how many people it becomes like this sacred moment where yeah. somebody has noticed them. Yeah. They get to hang language because you're asking them some questions. They get to hang language on what's rolling around in, in their heart and in their head. Mm -hmm. And and you're asking them to articulate it. A lot of times, people who have been a part of trauma or been near it or whatever, part of the trauma of it is they don't really know how to talk about it or, or, or how to describe it or even what their own feelings are. Then a reporter comes along and says, tell me, tell me what happened. Tell me how you are. What'd you see? What's this like? Have you ever gone through anything like this before? On the one hand, you could look like just a total voyeur. But on the other hand, if you're coming at this from the bearing witness perspective, you're saying, I, I want to honor your experience here. That's a different that's a different proposition. You know, you, you this is this is often what happens is you are in this book you're telling us how to do a particular kind of job, but then underneath it there's this being aware of the context, honoring the people you're in sacred territory. I think you, you are. don't want to There's like a, a a holiness base note undergirding all of this. I think that's accurate. It's really really moving. Well, thank you. I, I, I purposely don't get into religious speak in this book, but I do talk about transcendence and yes, absolutely, and, and uh, yeah. that's something. Something is happening when you deeply connect with another human being. Absolutely. Okay. There's a couple things that I was just. It's one of the reasons why you and I got along early <laughs> on too, yes. because we dropped into that space, as I right recall, away. almost immediately. Right away. We're like, oh yeah, this guy. Oh yeah, he knows the song I can hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know the song he can hear. Mm -hmm. Okay, you, um, you have at one point, page twenty-eight. Um, let me just read you a paragraph. This is just fantastic. Why do we want to interview famous people? What do we assume about them? What could we ask that hasn't already been asked a thousand times? What could we offer that isn't already out there? What could we ask that won't just perpetuate the cliches or myths? Parentheses, People Magazine, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they don't subscribe to your Robcast, do they? Of course they do. We love everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that from your perspective as a longtime journalist. Um, what could we ask that won't just perpetuate the cliches or myths? Well, I, why, why is celebrity news even interesting? Yeah, I, I'm still mystified by that, but it is. And so uh, otherwise there wouldn't be a People Correct. magazine or an Us Weekly or, or uh, any number of websites. So, there are nine covers, by the way. Pardon? There are nine covers, nine cover titles. I have this theory that when you go to the grocery store or you go to, to a pharmacy and there's right. all those magazines right. lined up, that there are nine covers that are endlessly in circulation. So here they are. Well, I don't know if I can hit about nine, <laughs> but you're going to like this. Uh, he or she is thriving top of their game. Yeah. Uh, he or she is going through her... On the, it's, it's on the rocks. We don't know. Um, he or she is alone. 
he or she is just taking taking some time. Um, he or she has found love again. Are we happy? He or, um, you're, you're, there's an arc thriving. It's starting to totter. Mm-hmm. It's over. Um, the first time they're spotted with the new lover, they're now going to make it official. Baby on the way. Career. New album. After all that, they open up. They reveal. They tell the truth. And then yeah, no, that's a good. And then then they're back in rehab. It's it yeah. is it is such a cla- like you are meeting somebody on this arc. Yeah. And then they're doing the public mea culpa, like asking, you know what, I I messed up. Um. Then everybody then the comeback. Yeah. They're like these nine, almost journey stages. Right. That these magazines just and they love phrases, so and so opens up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but here's was... but here's here's the lie. You read that they don't open up. In fact, <laughs> it, there's a good chance that reporter never actually talked to the person that they're writing the about. The publicist just fed them the lie. Exactly, exactly. So, but we fall for this all the time, and that's what I wanted you to talk about because of how you're breaking up in the book. It seems like maybe our. Uh, our own lives are so so shallow that uh, that we just have to live our you know our ourselves vicariously through somebody through George Clooney or something, um, but we just keep falling for these just dumb story ideas and these dumb story arcs when there's so much more. So you so as a journalist, when you see these headlines, you're like an editor and whoever was writing the story. They didn't have a meaningful conversation about how to to ask or approach this story or this person. That's absolutely true. Or this. What am I going to learn about what it means to be a human being? Or what what am I going to learn about my community or about this other person by doing this interview? And if it's just this really well-crafted, well-orchestrated publicity stunt, well, I could, I could see running a photo, but yeah. really? Are we going to do an interview that isn't really going to be an interview? Yeah. So, so these, uh, like when a, a, a new movie comes out, you, we've all seen sort of the... The press junkets, you know, the the reporter gets fifteen or twelve minutes or four mm-hmm. minutes with the celebrity, and it, they try to do it and make it look like they're just chummy and they just got back from eating sushi, right? And, and it's it's just such a dodge. <laughs> but I will say this: there are some reporters who do such good research and do such good preparation that they can make those twelve minutes look fantastic. And yeah. they'll go someplace in that 12-minute yeah. period that all, everybody else is just going, how does it feel to have a new movie out? You know, who? who okay, that's my next yeah, question. Yeah. Um, so I'm you, sort of leading this, right? Every time I say something, you say, that's my next question. I'm just saying, wow, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm owning this interview right now. You are crushing. No, literally, <laughs> this is the third or fourth time in a row when the next place I have underlined I in your you. book. I'm seeing it. You have, the, let me read you this. You write interviews after Olympic events. Oh my gosh! Are prime examples. There it is. A runner, or a skier, or a skater, or a gymnast has just completed something that only a freak of nature could complete. Something the athletes have been obsessing about for the last four years of their lives. And the interviewer asks, 
what was it like to be out there? I rarely shout at my television, but I almost get hoarse during the Olympics. Note to reporters who interview Olympic athletes, nothing is like being there. Ask a better question. There it is. There, there it is. And, and really, all that would take would be about five minutes of thought. Or, or, or just look up something on the internet about, about the, the, the sense of weightlessness if you are a, a ski jumper. Yeah, yeah. You know, what, that, find some sort of an equivalent you know, that this person then can draw out his or her humanity as opposed to dropping into a cliche. The re- sometimes, not always, sometimes the reason athletes just spout the same old dumb stuff is because they get asked the same old dumb questions. And so I don't blame the athletes as much as I, I blame the interviewers. Right. The the court side, what do you have to do better in the second half? We need yeah. to play better. Yeah. Yeah. I need to score more points than the right. other team. Yeah. If we score oh. more points, we could pull it off. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> okay. There's another, there's a story in here that I love so much. And I was like, I feel like this, there's like the dean, this is the dean behind the dean here. I love it. San Diego hires a new school superintendent. Yes. The new school intendant, superintendent of San Diego schools, hires. Uh, I think he was called a chancellor, chancellor. Yeah, of a instruction chancellor. from New York City to be kind of the vice head of whatever. Right. So this person is brought in from New York City public school system to turn the San Diego public school system around. He's the miracle worker. He's the he's and the messiah. He is the messiah, and there is a press conference that you go to as a journalist. Right. And. Reporters are asking questions like, how soon will a kid's test scores go up now that you're here? Mm-hmm. Like that sort of thing. Right. You, they've, al- they've already bought into the narrative of this guy is going gonna, is gonna to change everything. This they've already bought New in. New York magic's fairy dust is going to get sprinkled on our school system. Right. So this, is a, this press conference, the, it, there's all these people there. You then raise your hand after mm-hmm. all of these... Journalists have asked all these questions about just how awesome are you, basically. Yeah. And you say, how much did your decision to come to San Diego have to do with the ethics probe back in New York, where you were accused of violating ethical standards and professional misconduct, I asked. (laughs) You would have thought that that I think the line I used in uh, in, in the book there was that I had just dropped my pants, and pooped on his birthday cake. That is correct. That is the line you have here in the book. That is the look both the superintendent and this new messiah and the school board who were standing behind him like a Greek chorus, that is the look they all gave me (laughs) when I asked that question. And then it went... (laughs) There were a a series of those as we cycled around. They're literally waiting for you out front afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, when you're sitting there and they're all asking these questions, are you already like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to ask? Yeah. Um, and you're, you can do this. You're this. You're like, oh, this is this needs to be done. Someone needs to ask this. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the role of journalism is to what I is the cliche that I always use, which is to shine that bright spotlight of public scrutiny. On, pu- on public officials. That's our job. But to just 
accept the fact as they just blow sunshine up our dresses about how great this guy is going to be. Yeah. We just have to say, you know, with a, I think skepticism is a virtue, especially in journalism, where you just have to say, huh, I wonder. I wonder if that's true. So let's see. Let's, let's, because I had done my homework on this guy, and apparently none of the San Diego reporters had. Mm -hmm. So I knew about this stuff. And so I just asked him, but I just thought, this is, this guy's going to be paid with taxpayer money. We need to know, is he just escaping a scandal from New York? Or is he really coming to, uh, to be the miracle worker? And, and I'm okay with if it's both. But we can't just, we can't yeah. just skip over yeah, yeah. The, uh, the part about his scandal. And it was significant. And uh, by the way, did, did he turn anything around? No. <laughs> he got a sweet retirement eventually. But no. No. Emphatically no. Uh, okay, a couple things we I have to ask you about. Uh, the president and the media, fake news, mm -hmm. people being barred, White House press press credentials being taken away. Uh, tell me, tell me how you see all of that unfolding. I see it as uh, here we go again. We have had a uh, the news media have had an up and down relationship with administrators from the very beginning. Thomas Jefferson was no fan of the news media, even despite some of the great things he said about it. Alexander Hamilton was no fan of the news media. Why is that? Because we didn't just keep perpetuating whatever the narrative was that they wanted us to perpetuate. And have we done it badly at times and gone way on the sensational side? Sure, on occasion. But have we also exposed some significant wrongdoing where presidents have looked the nation in the eye, thank you, President Nixon, and said there is no secret war in Cambodia. There is no secret bombing going on in Cambodia while we were secretly bombing Cambodia. So, you know, this, this whole thing about enemies of the people, Nixon said that about uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times during the Pentagon Papers. So this is not new. I think with social media, it seems like it is new or it's more prevalent or the, the, uh, the hatred is more uh, significant. And I actually don't think so. I've, oh, that's I've, so interesting to me. I, honestly, Rob, I've seen this movie. Oh, that's so, all that's happening right now. You're like, yeah, this is, this is yeah. This is, this is why you learn history, to realize, oh, this isn't happening just in isolation. This has happened before. When kings used to kill the messenger when they were bearing bad news, it goes back there. Yeah, the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, not a metaphor or a figure no, of speech. No, 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 that was, that was a literal thing. Um, second question, you've spent a lot of time along the border. I have. And you've covered... As a, as a story, as human, what, where are we headed with um, how we think about all this? You know, it, I think it's actually a bigger question than that. It's how do we think about the other mm -hmm. is what I think this is really about. Yeah. And how do we, anybody who um, doesn't either look like or sound like the group that we 
wished was still in power, <laughs> you know, yeah. which is this shrinking population yeah. of people of European descent. You and me, for instance. Um, to not accept th where the world is headed as a reality right. is to dig in and become fearful and to spread fear and to build walls. So I'm just seeing this as a gasp of desperation for what we wished was still the, the case. And it's, you know, we all know. The universe know only goes in one direction. The universe <laughs> is headed in one direction and a wall is not that yeah, direction. Yeah. So uh, I really do think it has to do with um, how do we view the other? What do we see as our either responsibility or opportunity to, um, to come alongside another human being, especially one that comes to us and says, uh, I fear for my life or I, I fear for my future. Or I fear for my children's lives and the border patrol. And I am so glad I am not a border patrol, uh, officer. The people I have encountered with the border patrol with one exception. And that's the one exception is yeah. in this book. Yeah. Um, they've got a tough job. They have a really, really tough job, but they're, um, they're not there to think more globally or to think more in terms of what, how do we participate as a nation in the world? That's not their job. Correct. Their job is to say, how do we keep bad guys from coming into our country? So, uh, you know, I, I, I totally get that. But, my, but the, uh, the other way, an other way to think about the border is what kind of a role do we want our country, do we want ourselves to play in the lives of others around the world? If it's isolation, well, okay, then you go this way. If it's engagement, then you go that way. Uh, that's well said. That is well said. Okay, a couple more. Mm -hmm. I could just we could go all day here. Let's um, let's let's you, just keep going. You were did you start the journalism program at Point Loma? I did. They hired they me to start the journalism started, program. So you are interacting with college students all the time. Yeah. What is the students that you are teaching, training, telling these stories to? What is the number one thing you want them to get? in their time with you as they're studying. Is there a is there a like a note that you just keep playing? Is there a thread that runs through all of your work with these students as they're being shaped to go do this kind of work in the world? There is. And 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 the way in which some of it gets done may have changed, but the fundamental issue remains over the uh, the years I've done this, which is the way we understand the world and the way we understand ourselves is through story. And this is the next, the culture's next generation of storytellers. That's how I view whatever students I've got in front of me on any given year. They are going to be the storytellers. They're going to be the truth tellers. They're going to be how we understand our role in the world, how we understand our history, how we understand just who we are as human beings. We can call that journalism, and that's fine, but even journalism has changed you know, significantly since you know, I, I first came to uh, this university. 
But the fundamental role of story in culture, that has not changed, nor do I think it will. So we can teach methods, you know, differently. We can teach tools and, and toys differently. But fundamentally to say story is how we understand the world, that's still the takeaway as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that's great. That's profound. The next generation of storytellers. Yeah. Which is why I, I don't think I'm a, a, a rosy tinted glasses uh, uh, optimist, but I am an optimist. Uh, I am a, a hopeful person. And the reason I'm a hopeful person is that I deal with college students. And college students come in with a certain level of enthusiasm and passion and excitement and a future. And I get to engage with that, maybe for, with a little sense of wisdom that I can pass into their uh, enthusiasm. And maybe those forces get to meet every now and then. How could you not be optimistic when that happens? How could you not be filled with hope? I love it. That's, that's vintage Dean Nelson right there. That goes on that's, the t-shirt or the coffee mug or that's, something. That, that's my that's brave strong. heart moment. That's, that's really beautiful. Now, the book is called... Talk to me, how to ask better questions, get better answers, and interview anyone like a pro. I think you, you, it's such an interesting thing to read. It's got like elements of a textbook, and yet your humanity is all through it. And it's I, really and I interesting. Hope there, thank you. I, I hope there's some humor in there, too. I hope, it's, I I hope for some people... Very funny. It, yeah, it'll be entertaining. I was struck with, I don't have plans to become a journalist, and this book is really interesting. Cool. I mean, I, I, it's just fundamentally interesting to think about all of this. And then all of the things that we are all surrounded by, that we are reading, that we are seeing in the grocery store, the Olympics, how many different ways you give us to think critically and thoroughly about all of the various stories we are interacting with. Even, really, even, really interesting. Well, good, great. I'm glad it struck you that way. Even, even the way we talk to our kids. If you ask your kids these kinds of questions, you're going to get these kinds of answers. If you ask yes, your kids absolutely. a little broader yes. kind of thing, yes. uh, you're going to get a completely different level of engagement. So um, I, I actually had a guy write to me just a couple days ago who just finished this book who said, I have done 150 podcasts. And he said, and I'm going to change everything now. Yeah. And so even I know podcasting is a way a lot of us communicate these days. Uh, it's good for podcasters. I, I had thought that. Um, that wasn't a hint that you need to change things, Well, it's interesting. Way, um, I've been on the been the person being interviewed so many times. How have those gone? When, well, you know, I, it's funny. It, it, I, I was just thinking, you know, I've been interviewed so many times is the worst way to begin a sentence. <laughs> no, but, but, but I've been I, on the receiving end yeah. of so many th things where the person wasn't following what I now see are like basics. Yeah. And, okay, my favorite part of the book. Tell me. At the very end, there... There's a couple, there's some very practical sections here and there where mm -hmm. you're just like, I do this, don't do this. Um, you're sort of helping. Um, but there's a part at the end where you say, always at the end of an interview, ask the person how to spell their name. Yeah. What? No, why, why is that significant um, to you? When I've, it's, it's such a straightforward manual 
point that you would give in a classroom to people who had never done something about things you should not forget is, oh, by the way, at the end of the interview, ask the person how they spell their name. And then you go into, this may be the one or two times in their life when they're in the news. And and then you go into this whole thing about, and their name is spelled wrong. Yeah. And what it's like to see your name in public and the person didn't take time to spell it right. And what names tell us about, and how many times you've asked the person that, and then that took you into a whole new transcendent place. But it, uh, to me, it was like you, it's just, it's just the particular to the universal. You just start with this Journalism 101 manual thing. Maybe that's what I'm always trying to do with my own work at some level. So I just want to start get it here back with, to its, let's its, talk about your socks. Yeah, let's talk yeah. about how you made that smoothie. Let's talk about mm-hmm. what you did as the portal, the entryway into how do we love, how do we respect, what is this moment in relation to all moments? Right. And if, that if, it really it that that was that like that was just like the you, like your deft touch there with that one section was just magnificent. Oh, thanks. I'm 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 glad you picked up on that because really if one of the things that's happening when you're interviewing another person is that you're honoring the person? Yeah. How they spell their name honors them. Yes. And misspelling their name yes. when you just finished talking to them, it's the most gettable fact of your story. And you've misspelled their name, do you think they feel honored or dishonored in that moment? So beautiful. This is the gift you give us. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Dean, D-E-A-N, Nelson. <laughs> That's right. N-E-L-S-O-N, not E-N. O-N. Thank you for spelling it I always love catching up with you and to be able to interview you about this book. It's fun being with you. Thank you for honoring the book and honoring me. And people can get a hold of you how? Probably the easiest way would be my website, which is deannelson.net. And if you want to just watch 24 years of interviews with great writers, I've got a pretty good one with Kareem on there from last year. Yes. Uh, just go to deannelson.net. There's a tab there, interviews with writers. Dean started something called the Symposium by the Sea once a year, February, I believe mm-hmm. it is. Yep. You were there. All I have been there. All He interviews very, very interesting people from all across uh, various disciplines and mm-hmm. crafts and, and forms. And um, the ones I've seen and being a part of it myself is fantastic. Yeah, so that's, that's how you would reach me. There's a way to contact me there. Love it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for thank your you. interest, man. It's always fun hanging out with you again. Robcast friends, you know how much I love introducing you to new friends. And now grace and peace be with you. Mm.